Hello, welcome to Theologizing Life, where we talk about how what we think about God shapes the lives we live. And welcome to the first, the premiere episode of Theologizing Life being hosted by Anthony Cottrell and the one and only Matt Tracy. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> Can you drop a, sound effect? drop a sound effect in there for me? <laughs> My editing skills, I'll, I'll, I'll see what I can do. So, <laughs> so uh, moving forward, we will uh, talk, Matt and I will talk and about various theological and the intersection between some theological topics and real life. So hopefully they're not just heady conversations, but practical. Some of them will probably be nerdy. They will be nerdy. I mean, for sure. That's how we do. That's how. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then we may also uh, invite people on periodically as well, as I did in the past, to be guests and interview them. But today, uh, Matt, um, yeah. Actually, before we get into what we're going to talk about today, uh, both of us, we're going to do some segments where we just talk about some current or moderately current funny news segments because there's lots of bad news lots of discouraging news but uh there's also sometimes this funny weird news so matt do you have a it, it usually funny? originates from florida but <laughs> i don't know why i don't mine know why. didn't this time but it's kind of a free-for-all down there i guess uh you want me to go first yeah do you do you have a uh, funny Oh, yeah. Uh, so my headline, and this just kind of says it all, it's finalists announced in search for America's best restroom. So, what? yeah, Cintas, which is like, uh, I, I guess it's like a they make stuff like equipment for offices, like, you know, furniture and stuff like that. And they also like furnish the bathroom. So they'll do like the paper towel stuff. They they went around the country and had people submit their favorite public restroom and the final the top 10 is listed now um on the website so i'll give you a couple um this is great so <clears throat> the, the number one is core 24 gym in greenville south carolina so which is kind of crazy to me because like gym bathrooms that's disgusting like my wife goes to it my wife actively avoids going to the gym uh sometimes uh because she just can't stand being in the bathroom it smells so bad like i i yeah so that's that's kind of crazy to me and then number two is fancy flush in santa rosa california um fancy, and that, fancy flush i don't really know i just see a picture of it. it just looks like a small bathroom i'm not really sure what's what's going on uh there but I, I remember I was in California one time and I have a that went to a public bathroom. And what you would do is you you'd go in, you do your business and then you would leave, close the door and then the bathroom would like self clean. So it would like what? spray itself with like disinfectant and, and deodorizer. And it was a great experience uh, to watch that happen. So I'm assuming that's what fancy flush is. I'm not really sure. And then number three, this is the last one I'll, I'll share because I just think it's mind blowing is John F. Kennedy airport terminal four bathroom. That's very specific. Like, like an airport bathroom is one of the best bathrooms in the entire country, which is airport just bathroom at terminal four. Yeah. And yeah, no, specifically terminal four. Forget one, two, and three, five, you know, forget it. But whoever is in charge of cleaning Terminal 4 deserves a raise. 
It's so interesting. Uh, so if you're looking for vacation destinations, uh, you can oh, go that'd to be a great trip. Just like visit the top 10. There's a lot of like strangely public bathrooms here, like Steamboat Springs, Colorado. I've actually been there before. I might've, I might've done my business in that bathroom. Um, but yeah, it's just like a public bathroom, like in the middle of like a, like a state park or something like that, which are known for being just death traps. So yeah, it's scary. So a couple years ago, uh, my wife and I went on a vacation to Myrtle Beach. That's South Carolina, right? Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Yeah, I believe so. uh, this was after having Titus and he stayed with my mom. So this is our first trip together. But anyways, that's not that's not the important part. So we're like driving to South Carolina. And as we get into South Carolina and we're heading towards the highway that goes into Myrtle Beach, um, there are all these like billboard signs that are advertising um, rest stops. And uh, one of the one of the advertisements, like one of the ways they're trying to appeal to you is uh we have clean restrooms and it struck me as like funny because like how bad do the other restrooms have to be that part of your marketing strategy (laughs) is we will advertise that we have clean restrooms i mean like when i'm on a road trip like i will hold it if it if it means i don't have to go into like a rest stop or a gas station bathroom oh yeah yeah for sure there are times like where i'm just like it's not worth it i'm just gonna hold it because i don't want to you know, get, get an infection. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right. And, but I'm thinking like, how bad are the gas station bathrooms? I mean, cause they were, mo- I mean, billboard yeah. after billboard, we have clean restrooms. Like, man, they really, I mean, they're really working that marketing angle. Well, really like how else would you market a rest stop? <laughs> like we have a parking lot. <laughs> you can put your car. <laughs> we we have might them. have some, we might have some, <laughs> picnic tables that have bird poop on them and we have a lot of travel brochures that you'll never read like i don't know really like there's no other feature of a rest stop that would attract people you know yeah they should have hammocks and beds and you know in the bathroom no not in the bathrooms (laughs) at the rest oh oh, beds no that'd be no i can't even stay at a hotel like that creeps me out too much i can't imagine what a rest stop bed would look like so um we might have to we'll share two this time but we may just share one in the future so we can save these but uh mine that i found the headline was um actually i can't read the headline because it just gives it away so in singapore uh there was a woman who called uh the animal welfare group acres in Singapore. I don't know, but she called them because there was a noise that she was hearing in her apartment and the resident, she sent the team a recording of the noise she heard and the rescuers determined it sounded like a black spitting cobra, a venomous species. I'm I'm reading from the article here. So the team searched her home for nearly an hour before a gentleman whose name I'm going to not pronounce uh, discovered the source of the hissing an Oral-B electric toothbrush. <laughs> In the title, the headline says, Animal Rescuers Searching for Hissing Cobra Find Electric Toothbrush. <laughs> uh, I think my favorite part of that story is she sent them a recording and they're like, oh, <laughs> that sounds like this subspecies of cobra specifically. Right. <laughs> and they searched for an hour. <laughs> they searched for an hour for a venomous... Can you imagine the anxiety of this woman too who, who sent... <laughs> 
recording. Like she was nervous enough that she recorded it and then sent them and they're like, oh yeah, that's a venomous That's a straight up cobra right there. <laughs> Coming over. And it turns out it's a toothbrush. Like yeah. my question also is like, who just leaves their toothbrush running? Like, <laughs> did she just like, st- like forget, just like sit it down on the counter and it's just still vibrating away? Like, I feel like you would notice that. Or yeah. did it like fall between the counter and the wall? Like I have more questions, I think about what's going on in that situation. <laughs> I mean, there's always more questions when there's weird news stories. It's like, wait, what? What's happening? <laughs> That's good. Oh, good stuff. So Matt, what are we talking about today? Oh, today, uh, in honor of Labor Day, we are going to be talking about a, uh, a theology, practical and kind of, you know, um, theoretical, theological, uh, we're going to be talking about the Sabbath and Sabbath rest. So uh, we just thought it'd be a good Labor Day discussion to have, um, especially now in our, our culture and in, in America, we, we, we value work. And sometimes I think, as we're going to talk about today, we have a bit of a misunderstanding of what work is, uh, what it means, and how important Sabbath truly is. So yeah, the Protestant work ethic. Yeah. Well, I think it naturally follows. A good question is maybe not to assume uh, that people know um, what this is. So, uh, Matt, the gentleman with his <laughs> master degree, the scholar, as a last, the scholar and the gentleman who will be pursuing a PhD, the pre pre PhD. Yeah. <laughs> I can't I put that on a resume. Yet. Yeah. <laughs> In process. No. Um, Matt, what is the Sabbath? Uh, where did uh, it originate? I'll start there. What is the Sabbath? Where did it originate? What is well, it originated in the in the Ten Commandments. Um, I have a feeling I, I remember which number it is, but I don't want to guess and be wrong. Uh, but it's one of the Ten Commandments. Um, remember the Sabbath uh, and, and keep it holy. Um, so that was Israel's day of we'll get more into it, but their day of national rest where uh, workers and even their, their servants and their animals, they wouldn't do any work on that day. And yeah, so that's where it originated. And there's quite a bit. So it's in the 10 commandments, but the old Testament expounds a little bit. And um, it was a part of, it was a part of their, if you will, ritual culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, when did they observe this? Well, Was typically it on Saturday, our Saturday, I guess. Yeah, it te- technically it was um, their week uh, ended on a Saturday. So, so they would observe the Sabbath from a Friday night to uh, the following Saturday night, uh, as opposed to Sunday when we uh, typically observe it. Well, right. So if it was a, originally observed on a, a Saturday and that's uh, really true to Sabbath, when, like, why do some Christians sort of apply, I guess, a Sabbath um, mentality to Sundays? And and some I've come across, like, there are people, they have varying degrees of rigidity, you know, like some Christians won't mow their lawn on a Sunday, uh, but but they'll go to a rat. They'll go out to eat. Um, 
on a Sunday after church. Uh, but then they'll also complain that places are open on Sunday. But then we ought, let's be honest, even the saintliest of us all complain when we want Chick-fil-A on Sunday. Oh, absolutely. So anyways, yeah. I'm you and I have gone golfing on a Sunday. <laughs> well, come on. <laughs> um, yeah. So why, why do Christians, uh, how do we apply it to like our Sunday uh, sort of worship practice or the rules that sometimes in Christian subcultures we have, like what, what happened there? How did that happen? Well, um, the, the rigidity, I think has just been kind of a, yeah, a product of centuries of, you know, differing opinions and viewpoints and family culture and tradition. And, and people just kind of develop their own understanding of what Sabbath needs to mean, whether it's don't mow my lawn uh, on Sunday morning or on a Sunday um, you know, businesses should be closed on Sundays to, you know, just, I'm going to take Sunday and be kind of low key and, and relax and, and not do much in the way of work. Um, so there's, there's varying degrees of rigidity. Um, the whole, you know, Sunday Sabbath, because, you know, traditionally it was a Friday night to Saturday night, uh, that changed in, um, this might be a little, uh, a little, um, uh, controversial, I guess, but um, it's a well, kind of a well-attested fact. Uh, you can, you can attribute the Sunday worship to uh, the Sunday Sabbath to Emperor Constantine. So if you go back to the fourth century, uh, Constantine was the Roman emperor who was famous for kind of Christianizing uh, the, the Roman empire. So they conquered a bunch of uh, pagan nations and uh I guess Constantine's evangelism, quote unquote, strategy was to take their rituals and just make them about Christianity. So um, Sunday, um, there's a reason it's called that. That was the pagan day of the sun. It was a day of sun worship, S-U-N, not Jesus, sun worship. They would literally worship the sun. But Constantine got a hold of that and he just made it into the new Sabbath. It was a day of God worship. It was the day of rest. So um, you can look that up. It's a well-attested, a well-attested fact that uh, Constantine, uh, we can, we can give him credit for making that call uh, way back in the fourth century. And we've kind of been doing it ever since. So one of the things that I think, actually, I'm going to read, uh, I'm going to read a segment from Exodus just so we can like you know, appeal to scripture and then kind of talk about where it came from. But um, Exodus 28 through 11 says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For it is six days, for in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the Sabbath. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So, there's also places in Deuteronomy and things, but like, this is something that God clearly like instituted. It even connects it to the sort of the rhythm of creation, if you will. And it was a part of their sort of, it was a part of their covenant, a part of their religious expectations. But somewhere down the line, um, there were a bunch of oral traditions that got added onto it and uh, it became very legalistic and rigid within the Jewish experience. And so Jesus comes on the scene 
And there are a couple of times and like the gospel authors are very clear because um, I think Mark is one of them, but there's a couple of scenes that he puts back to back where it says, and on a Sabbath, and then like Jesus does, uh, like he heals someone or he does something um, that goes against the oral traditions, sort of the, <clears throat> the rigid laws and the Pharisees about losing their minds. And so um, there's this, I guess what I'm saying is there's this biblical concept of Sabbath uh, that we can read about. There was these rigid oral traditions. There are Christians today who sort of maybe have some rigid things they apply to it. Um, but what's the heart of it, I guess? Like, let's just get, so I, like I found we often sort of abstract the laws of God from God's heart, and then we miss the whole point. Um, so <clears throat> what, what was the point of the Sabbath? What did it have to do with Israel's relationship to Yahweh? How does it keep us more fully human? Like what, how do we apply it? So let's maybe, and then we, I think we can talk uh, probably from there. There's some other maybe conversations or questions that we can shoot off from there. But um, so we talked about where the Sabbath originated, uh, but what was it? Like, what was the point um, if we were to boil down beyond these rigid uh, rules and things? So a <clears throat> couple, couple of thoughts, and there's a lot more to be said, but I think the, the, the core um, idea is that the Sabbath was created to reflect the creation story. Um, so in that story, like God rested on the seventh day. Um, and so one kind of function of Sabbath rest was identifying Israel with their God. Um, we as God's people live in accordance with the ways of God and God rested on the seventh day. Uh, and, and so should we. So it identified Israel with Yahweh, um, the creator, who's the one uh, true God. Um, and this God is the God who set the rhythms of the world into motion. Uh, and he rested on the seventh day. And so the Sabbath was kind of a worship act in, in a sense. It was Israel remembering and observing their identity as God's people um, and being created in his image. And it was also, I think, um, was it was kind of an evangelistic uh, tool, I guess, as well, because other nations uh, would look on um, Israel and see that there was there was something different about them, like Back in an agricultural society um, like Israel, like the nations around them, missing a day of work was a huge deal. Like you couldn't, you couldn't just take a day off. It, it is kind of just unheard of. That, that meant a lot of loss in you know, production. You wouldn't gather as many crops. Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to do much uh, or as much as you would if you if you didn't if you work seven days a week. Um, so other nations would have seen. Uh, Israel observing this day, and they would have seen, you know, something different about these people. Um, and ultimately, I, I think that would have drawn people toward their God as well. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's good. <clears throat> I love. So there's this book called uh, "Sabbath as Resistance: Saying No to the Culture of Now" by an Old Testament scholar by the name of Walter Brueggemann, and. Um, I'm going to share a quote. He says, the divine rest on the seventh day of creation has made clear, A, 
that Yahweh is not a workaholic. B, that Yahweh is not anxious about the full functioning of creation. And C, that the well-being of creation does not depend on endless work. And, and I love that because um, how much of our culture, how much of our lives is characterized by this workaholism that is anxious about the functioning of our worlds, you know, of whatever they may be, our, our job, our home, um, our agendas, we're, we're full of anxiety. And then we have this, almost this sense, or at least I know I've been there where there's this sense that uh, depends on me, on this endless sense of work. But uh, Brueggemann points out that God resting on the seventh day sort of makes these statements um, about who Yahweh is and we're created in his image. So that's part of, I think that's part of the focus too. And you, you sort of mentioned it, it's about worshiping God who rests on the seventh day, but um, there's also, so part of worship is reflecting the God in whose image we are created. Mm-hmm. And when we practice this Sabbath rest, we practice reflecting the image of the Sabbath resting God, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I have, I have some other quotes I'll share as we go along, probably because, um, this book by Brueggemann, it's actually not a long, it's so it's a really short book. It's not even a hundred pages, um, mm-hmm. but he's a pretty smart dude. So they're not, not all the pages are, uh, super easy well, to read. But I love books like that. Just yeah. for pastors who don't have time to read 300 pages a week. And yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah. It's, um, uh, it's good. So in, um, in Deuteronomy, I thought it was kind of interesting. Um, uh, Moses kind of recontextualized uh, the Sabbath after the Israelite exodus. And um, for, I forget which verse, but he, he rehashes kind of the Ten Commandments and um, he highlights the Sabbath um, and he puts it in terms of the exodus. So like you shall keep the Sabbath because you have worked as slaves for 40 years and now God has given you and allowed you the freedom to rest. And I thought that was pretty, it's, you know, beautiful. Like, you know, it, it wasn't a, a rigid, like, this is what your Sabbath should look like. This is what it means. Like it was almost a fluid understanding of it. Like it has different meanings, uh, maybe even in different uh seasons of life like what observing the sabbath uh, truly means and I, I thought that was pretty I, I read an article about that passage and um i thought it was pretty impactful it yes i so i love i love that you brought that up because um one of the things Bergerman again he says even in the wilderness with scarce resources god mandates a pause for the sabbath of community and he goes on and he writes and he talks about how like it's interesting that when the Sabbath is sort of the Sabbath command is given to them after their 40 years of being enslaved in Egypt, God gives it to them when they're in the wilderness and in a wilderness in a uh, agricultural context or society, uh, that's when resources are scarce. Like that's when you feel the sense. So like when we feel like money is tight, that's often when we'll work more over time and things to, to make up for it. Well, in the wilderness, resources are scarce. And so this sense that we need to produce in order to survive 
Uh, it's, it's in the midst of that that God says, no, you will rest. And this also contrasts their identity. They were slaves in Egypt, but it reinforces you are not, um, you are not defined by what you produce and what you do. Um, yeah. You are the people of God. And I just think it's so, so beautiful that God mandates Sabbath in the wilderness because it's sometimes even in our lives that God is calling us to rest even when resources are scarce. And part of it, and part of the point of, I think, Walter Brueggemann calling it Sabbath as resistance, part of it is resisting the mentality that it depends on us. Mm -hmm. Like Sabbath rest in part is this act of trusting God to be God yeah. and provide uh, for our needs. Yeah. It was, um, it was Deuteronomy 5.15, the verse I was referring to. Um, 14 and 15 it says six days you shall labor and do all your work but the seventh day is a sabbath to the lord your god on it you shall not do any work neither you your son your daughter your manservant your maidservant your animals not even the um foreigners within your gates um and then 15 remember that you were slaves in egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Yeah, it's good stuff. Um, so, okay, we're talking about how God institutes Sabbath is meant to reflect uh, reflect the image of God who rested, is meant to be this worship of God, this pausing, and in doing so, it was an act of trust. Uh, in doing so, it was also an act of declaring their identity, that they are the people of God, not slaves of production. And that's all good. But in the Old Testament, there's also a lot of talk. Well, it's I think it's not just the Old Testament, but where you see it the most is in Proverbs. There's a lot of talk about hard work. Um, it speaks a lot about how hard work leads to success and prosperity while laziness and foolishness lead to poverty. And I mean, I just have a li list of Proverbs where this is sort of talked about, you know, Proverbs 6, 10, uh, verses 10 through 12, Proverbs 12, 11, and 12, 24, 13, 4, 14, 23, 21, 5. Like it's through, throughout Proverbs, this idea of like, Hard work will lead to success, but laziness will lead to folly, you know? Um, so does advocating for Sabbath rest compete with the value of hard work? Is it this like either or we're talking about, you know, you and I are millennials. We're just lazy millennials who mask our laziness with the term work-life balance, but we're just lazy <laughs> advocating for, you know, spiritualizing our laziness here by talking about Sabbath. Like, is there this competition between Sabbath rest and hard work? Um, I want to hear your thoughts on this too, but it, I think there is a tension there, but only if we don't have a full understanding of what work truly is and what it truly means. So like, go back to the beginning, like work was a feature of original creation. Um, you know, God created people to do work and have dominion like this was before sin entered the picture god created mankind to have dominion and to work in the world and so it's a feature like god again 
it's something that God does. And so he created us to do it too. We're image bearers. God creates, God works. Um, and so he gave that ability and that calling and that privilege to us as well to work. So God gave us work. Like literally he created the, the entire concept of work. And so we can view work actually as a gift, but as a gift, um, you use it and observe it in the way that it was intended. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, I've used this example before. Like I like to cook and it's like, it's kind of a hobby of mine. And last Christmas I asked my wife for like a chef's knife and this is pretty expensive. Like they're not cheap. Uh, and so I really wanted it so I could, I could, because my wife's the, the knives I have are, are, are pretty bad. So I just wanted a new knife that I could use when I cook uh, a good meals and stuff like that. And so my wife bought it for me uh, as a gift and I was super happy. Now imagine like how my wife would feel if she walked in and I was using that expensive chef's knife to like trim my toenails or something like that. Like when you, when you view something as a gift, like you are motivated. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when you view something as a gift, like you use it in the way that it was intended to be used when it was given to you. Um, as an act of love. Like I wouldn't abuse the gift that my wife gave me to, to trim my toenails. Uh, so I guess hard work with no Sabbath rest is abusing that gift. It's that's actually what goes against the value of hard work. Um, yeah. if you think about it that way. Yeah, that's good. I, yeah, I agree. Work was a gift from God and it's meant to be also how we reflect his image. He's a creator. Jesus said, my father's always working. Um, but I think one of the distinguishing factors, maybe we should have an episode about like a theology of work, but God's work is uh, life giving, mm -hmm. like life creating. Um, and so it's not self-serving. And so God, and, and I think how we were created to work is um, producing to provide for needs. Uh, I don't even like the word producing. I mean, working to provide for our needs, like sustaining life uh, is good. Um, and I think working so you can enjoy other things in life, like don't hear me saying that if you make enough money to, you know, have a boat and go out on the weekends, that that's not okay. That's not what I'm saying. But we reflect God when our work is life giving, but when our work becomes this like uh, rat race of securing our identity, you know, like proving our value because of uh, our status, our economic status, or when work becomes this endless cycle of uh, really um, covetous desires or greedy desires uh, and more, more, more. And so then we work more, 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 so we can get more, more, more. Like when we're in that cycle of more, uh, work's not good. So like, I guess maybe, let me back up. I feel like I'm, I need to clarify maybe here, do the preacher three point thing. So I think <laughs> work is good. Work is from God, but work is not immune from the consequences of sin and work itself can go wrong. Um, when our identity is rooted in our work, when we are defined by what we do, and when our work is feeding the cycle of greed or covetousness or discontent or materialism or consumerism, um, that's bad. And Sabbath, 
is one of the almost spiritual disciplines we can practice to directly counteract those two bad byproducts of work. So Sabbath says, I am not defined by what I do. I'm defined by the God who rests. Mm -hmm. And then Sabbath says, uh, the world does not depend on me. Um, Sabbath says, I don't have to keep feeding this endless desire of more, more, more. I can stop. I can pause. I can rest. And so Sabbath is in a way, or at least how I kind of look at it, uh, is the spiritual discipline of sort of counteracting the ways work has been tainted by the fall. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, that's really good. Good stuff. And so, yeah, I think there's a difference, I think, between hard work ethic and workaholic, workaholic, workaholic. Why am I having a hard time? Workaholism. Workaholism. <laughs> workaholism. There's a difference, I think, between a hard work ethic and workaholism. But I think it can be hard to just like, how does one distinguish between the two? What are your thoughts think, on that? I think a simple answer is like, if you look at any addiction, um, like alcoholism or like a gambling addiction, shopaholism, um, any, any other addiction that uh, is, is prevalent in our culture. I think that the core issue is that there's a spiritual need there. That's that the person is trying to fulfill with something temporal something physical. Um, and so I think that there's a difference. The difference is there, like a hard work ethic is, is kind of what you just described. It's like, it's, it's work that is life-giving. It's work that is productive. It's work that is honoring to God. And there's, those are all good things. It's observing that God is good, that the world doesn't depend on me, but I'm trusting in the Lord and all I do. That workaholism is using work as a you know, a balm for something that is hurting. Except, uh, for example, a, a trouble at home. Um, someone might work sixty to seventy hours a week because they feel more comfortable and at peace uh, in the office than they do around their wife, who who they might be, not be doing well uh, in their relationship. Uh, something like that, where um, there's a there's a spiritual need something that deep down that needs to be resolved that they're using work kind of as a crutch um, to cope with like yeah. someone use alcohol or drugs or gambling or something like that. Yeah. And I, I can't totally speak to like maybe a woman's experience and maybe it's not fair to even generalize according to, to gender. But I think there's at the same time, I think there might be something there, but like, I know as a, a man, I like to feel competent um, capable. And I know there's been times where I felt competent in something I was doing at work. Um, and I, and, and I, I got a sense of value from that, got a sense of like accomplishment, a sense of like, um, my identity, like, you know, my value is like mm -hmm. what I can contribute. And at home, um, when with our children or with my wife, when things are stressful, like, uh, with the kids, or I don't feel like, as a parent, I know what I'm doing. Or sometimes I feel like I don't know uh, how to love my wife well right now or in this season or whatever. There, there've been, I don't think I've ever allowed it to become a pattern because I, I try to keep a pretty good temperature gauge on this, but like I could feel the temptation to spend more time in the place where I felt competent and avoid yeah. the place that put a spotlight on my insecurities. Yeah. And right. I think, I think, 
I can, I think I've seen it in other men too. Like they feel competent in their work um, and not maybe as competent at loving their wife or their kids. Right. And it's easy. There's a temptation there. And the thing about it is it's a sanctified temptation because it can <clears throat> right. really so we love work right. in our culture. Right. Like, you're a hard worker. Yeah. That's like a, a huge compliment <laughs> to give. So it's, yeah. is you're a hard worker. Um, yeah, I agree. What are, what are some ways, I guess, maybe if we were to get practical, what are, what are some ways we could maybe practice Sabbath? And maybe something I think I want to point out is there are sometimes seasons of life where we, we call it in ministry, uh, high tide, low tide. Mm-hmm. And the, the idea is there's some seasons that sort of demand more and then some that are a little bit quieter. And sometimes that happens in life. Like I know people who are in a season of life where they have aging parents and uh, their ability to practice Sabbath rest and care for um, the, the life transitions their older parents are going through. Like life is pretty chaotic during that season. I think, I think there's room for there to be seasons where things are a little more intense maybe. But I think what we want to talk about maybe avoiding or trying to practice spiritual disciplines for is, is avoiding this being like a pattern or habit or, or characteristic of our lives where uh, workaholism is set in, where we're defined by what we do, um, where we're just, a, you know, totally bought into the Western culture of consumerism. So what are some ways uh, we can practice and value Sabbath? Is it, not working on Sunday, not mowing our grass on Sunday, not shopping on Sunday. <laughs> well, um, you and I both work in a church and we, we work on Sundays. <laughs> so um, that's kind of hard. It's not work. We're just doing what God called us to do, man. It's, yeah, I know you're being sarcastic, but like not a lot of people understand like that's, that's work for us. Like, yeah, I, I work on Sunday mornings um, and even we have, I mean, we live in Indiana, like there are factories that are open seven days a week, like people work all week long. And so um, for pastors and also other people, like if you have like a manufacturing job or your business is open, um, if you work at a restaurant or something like that, like it, it might be easy to like look on those people and be like, oh, they're not practicing Sabbath rest. Well, they're providing, like they're working and and that's not a bad thing. So I think we need to avoid, first of all, like before we get, you know, super practical is like avoid the, the whole, you know, Sunday is completely sacred. No one should be doing anything um, kind of mentality. Um, yeah. I think we need to contextualize it a little bit. And Don't get rigid. Yeah, don't get rigid. Um, I think one one thing I, I've I've not been so good at in in practicing Sabbath myself is, um, but I think it's important that that it's a regular habit is is protecting it and not. Um, and I was I'm going to ask you a little bit about this in a minute, but um, protecting it and not being very um, open to changing it <laughs> on, on those days. So for example, I have an 18 month at home. And so rest for me, it kind of comes in, you know, 
fits and starts, uh, depending on usually when she's napping. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I stay home with her on, on Fridays and, and my wife's home on Saturdays. And so those days, like those are the days that I spend with my family. I don't, I don't do work. I don't, I, I mean, we might work out in the yard, but that's, you know, we're caring for our home. That's life-giving work. Like that's not, you know, something that I'm, I'm doing because it's, you know, tedious or anything like that. It's something that I want to be doing. Um, and so those are the days that I spend with my wife and my daughter and we, it, we don't have like a set ritual schedule, but um, those are the days that I try. Uh, and sometimes obviously there's seasons of life where we're busy, but I try to block those off as days where I don't think about work. I don't look at my emails. I don't, you know, I, I might be, I might have a student ministry event or something like that on a Saturday. And in that case, I'll, I'll do this another day, but um, I'm, I'm pretty rigid not in how I practice it or how I think about it but I'm rigid in I'm committed to observing it and and not thinking about work on those days even if I do have something on Monday that I really have to get done that I'm stressed out about um it's sometimes it's hard to just not let yourself stress out about things but um that's part of it as well is kind of just trusting God that it's going to get done and and worrying about it is, is not as productive actually as resting. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. It's good stuff. Um, I'm, I'm with you on the protecting it. So my weekend, you know, a lot of people, they, they work, if they work uh, a Monday through Friday job, uh, Saturday, Sunday's their weekend. Um, my weekend is kind of Friday, Saturday. So I work Sunday through Thursday. Uh, Friday is my, my day off. And I am pretty vigilant about protecting it. And Saturday, occasionally there's church events or there's things that happen on Saturday that will, will require work. So I'm, I view it more as just like a weekend day, like, you know, like anyone else's weekend. But Friday, I try to treat a Sabbath. And so um, I don't plan things. Uh, obviously, if there's like a funeral or there's something um, urgent or that's, that's different, but I, I guess what we look at is urgent too. Um, it, it is up for discussion, I guess, but anyways, in general, I don't plan to do anything related to church or ministry on Fridays. It's typically a family day. We might do something with friends, uh, but that's something we typically would talk about and agree. To. It's not a, not a ministry connection point. It's a, yeah. like our kind of hopefully I don't need to explain this fully, but it, it may be doing something with, with friends. Something I heard a friend of mine say recently that uh, I thought was really good is he talked about how if you normally work with your hands, Sabbath with your mind. If you normally work with your mind, Sabbath with your hands. And I like that because I shared with him, I was working on some project at home. I don't remember what it was, but I finished it and I felt really accomplished. I felt really good about what I did. And it was really strangely restful. And he's like, yeah, you work with your mind, Sabbath with your hands. And you mm -hmm. just mentioned that sometimes you guys maybe will do yard work or work on things around your house. And I think um, sometimes with people, it's hard to quantify, but sometimes ministry, there's a ton of work that happens um, in between my earlobes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> between strategizing uh, the creative process of sermon writing, um, the relational, like thinking through relational uh, conflicts or care, or past things. 
um, there's a ton of mental and uh, energy that goes into. Um, so sometimes actually doing something um, that uh, is not that uh, manual work is, it takes a different kind of mental energy. Um, mm -hmm. So sometimes working with my hands is actually really life-giving, but um, yeah, but yeah I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I sort of protect Friday and um, I just don't like if people want to connect or they want to get together, I just don't make Friday. It's like, they don't need to know why for, yeah. for all they know, I have, you know, a wedding to do. Yeah, it, uh, like, I don't need to tell them what's on the schedule. I just, my schedule's not open. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you, like, as a pastor, you, there, there's kind of a misconception in, in church culture that the pastor is like, you know, at their beck and call. Um, we kind of gotten away from that with you know younger leaders now uh, in today's day and age but like as a pastor like how do you like protect that time of your week and also be available for your people you know what i mean without being how do you protect that time of your week without being impolite or unavailable uh or you know legalistic sounding yeah I think, so I read a book called Filled Up, Poured Out by Mark Wilson. He's a Wesleyan pastor and it is uh, published by the Wesleyan Publishing House, but in it, he talks about rest and um, he shares about a time when he was at home and I think it was like pizza night or something with the family. You know, they were making pizza, they're going to have a movie. It was like a big thing that the kids, his kids look forward to like all week. It was like, you know, a big part of their family uh, ritual and stuff. And a couple called him and they were just distraught they they had had a fight, an argument, you know, they were on the brink of divorce, all this stuff, their, their relationship was falling apart and they wanted him to come over and, and talk with them and help them sort it out. And he's on the phone and um, I don't remember everything he said, but he, he just talked about like seeing his kids and, and the, just the disappointment and sort of the like, uh, dad's gonna leave again, you know, like just sit in on them. And, and he realized in that moment, um, this marriage didn't fall apart in a day. Mm -hmm. He's not going to be able to go put it back together in a couple hours. Yeah. He told them he'd love to meet with them. You know, I don't know what day, like on Monday or the next day uh, at his office, we'd love to connect with them and, and do some premarital coaching mm -hmm. or not premarital, uh, marital coaching. And um, that really stuck with me, obviously, <laughs> as I'm sharing it now, but like, um, there are some things that feel really imminently urgent to some people, uh, but it, uh, and we really like quick fixes, right? Like we like fast food, microwave dinner, uh, weight loss pills, you know, all this stuff. Um, but most things aren't going to be solved that quickly. So some things that people feel are really urgent, like you just try to put it in perspective and like, I'd love to meet with you in person. I can meet with you tomorrow. Um, yeah. And here's the thing. If you were with, if you had a wedding or you had a funeral, people would understand that, right? Like, mm -hmm. it's like, oh, clearly you can't come, you're doing this. But if you're loving your family as God called you to, like people may dispute that. And it's like, no, this, this is priority. But okay. then you also leave room for, there are times though, there, there, there have been times where I went to the hospital um, because didn't know if someone was going to 
live. Yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't, I don't think it was on my day off, but it was, it was at an inconvenient time where there's other things going on. You know, um, there are, there are, well, there, there have been times actually vacated. There was, uh, I was on vacation technically, but I went, went to a hospital um, and had to prepare a funeral and things like that. Um, that is literal like life and death. So that's, yeah. that's different, but there's some things, you know, we've been in youth ministry. I've had teens like text me and, you know, and I, I love teens and it really is real to them, but sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. like this isn't monumental or like, we're yeah. not going to sort this out right now. We can, we can talk later. So mm-hmm. I don't know if that answers. answers yeah, that. no, it, it does definitely. And it, it goes back to the world doesn't depend on me. You know, yep. like you get the savior complex sometimes in ministry where you're like, I, I need to be there for my people or else they're just gonna, you know, they can't live without me. And that's just not true. Exactly. Um, and I guess that is a, that's a good way of thinking about Sabbath rest as a pastor. It's, you know, yeah, you are a, a heavy spiritual influence in these people's lives, but their marriage isn't going to fall apart because you're not there at a certain time of day. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That's good. And so, the other uh, thing, sorry, go ahead. Well, I just, the other thing people need to understand too, is like pastors, um, we need to be filled up to like that book's called <laughs> filled up or out. And, and sometimes it gets neglected. And, and I've talked to pastors who sometimes their, their sermon planning is their devotional time. And, um, and they never take Sabbath and statistically, and even just like uh, in my experientially, um, if you want your pastor to be a good pastor, <laughs> then you want him uh, to fill his cup too. And part mm-hmm. of how he can do that is by taking some Sabbath rest. Absolutely. So I had, I had one more question for you um, because you're the, you know, the lead pastor and, and, you have some experience with this, uh, probably. Um, if someone comes into your office and, and they're struggling with workaholism, um, they're letting their their work kind of negatively impact their other areas of their life, their marriage, their kids, their friends, their spirituality. Um, how would you counsel them? Like, how would you give them perspective? How would you encourage them? Like, what practices would you encourage them to do? If they were in that situation, um, this the, so I don't have like a real good uh, like cookie cutter answer because there's so many layers sometimes that are going on in people's lives. Like, so sometimes it could be marital issues. So I did there, there was a couple I talked to and um, and it wasn't just work. Like there was a a gym time too. So there's work, long hours at work and then long hours at the gym. Mm-hmm. And so, um, kind of just encourage, like, you know, your wife really needs quality time. Um, and she's, she's sort of starving for that and encourage them, like find a day that is like, uh, either one, I think it, we encourage them like once a week, you know, they didn't have kids or no, that's not true. They did have kids. Um, but, uh, like one, one day a week that is like your wife knows, like you're going to pour into her and your relationship and like do a date night or something. And it doesn't have to be like you go out and spend money on dinner because sometimes people can't do that. But like one night a week where you're not going to be putting in hours at the gym and this. So it's just like encouraging to 
begin there. So I guess one of the things is start small. So wherever they are and whatever, try to uh, encourage a a realistic next step for right um, for where they're at. But then the other factor that sometimes that could be going on is uh, people have uh, people have created a scenario because of living beyond their means where like they have to work overtime. And so some of that is actually just trying to help um, instill some more positive financial principles. Yeah. So maybe like going to a financial peace class would actually be a good step for them. Yeah. That's another area that we haven't really even dove into is like our addiction to work and our culture because we love stuff so much. Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, the average American, I, I don't know the exact number, but the, the amount of debt that they're in, that's not mortgage, like that's different. Um, credit card debt, it's it's ridiculous. It's it's unbelievable because people live above their means and they have to work to compensate for that. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's obviously there's no cookie cutter answer, but yeah, yeah. I, I just wanted to hear some in, in a hypothetical scenario, like yeah. some of the things that you might want to look into, like. Uh, quality time with your spouse that's yeah or you know bad financial habits they might be the root cause of it but then Um, if it's not if it if they aren't actually dependent on like that overtime like encourage people like you can say no like Mm -hmm. we've created a culture where our companies and employers don't value employees but we've been somewhat um uh, what's uh, I can't think of the word when you uh, basically you participate in the process. Um, yeah, we've we've essentially went along with it and allowed it in a sense. And so some people like it could be like you, you need to say no <laughs> to yeah. overtime. You, like yeah. it's not forced overtime, and you don't actually need it to to make ends meet. Like say no, um, and and sometimes part of that pastorally, what you can hopefully the spirit will give you guidance on how to do it. And a relationship for me always matters. Like the degree to which I speak into people's life, our relationship matters. I don't just presume to be able to tell people what to do, but one of the things is helping them understand, like, this is like going for the jugular. Like when you die, uh, your employer, like you're not going to care, like what was on your paycheck. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, if you're dead, you're not going to care anyways, but I mean, (laughs) When you think about your death and what you want your legacy to be, what you want people to say about you at your funeral, at least I think most of us probably don't want them talking about how much, how many hours we put in, how hard of work we were, how much money we made. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want our wife and our kids and our grandkids to talk about how well we love them. Yeah. Um, and that requires presence. So that, so sometimes it just begins with helping people like reprioritize or realize like what matters. You know, yeah. yeah, that sounds like a good, um, good place to end on. I had another question, but um, can you just share those? I think you shared two resources, two books. Um, could you give us like the the title if anyone's yeah. listening and they want to check them out? Or yeah, buy? I'll share three actually. Um, there's uh, Sabbath as Resistance by Walter Brueggemann. Um, it's a small book, but it is pretty, uh, he is a scholar. Uh, a less 
scholarly book, but also really good. And he actually, um, Walter Brueggemann's book is in his in notes and stuff, uh, is The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. And then this book is more geared towards pastors, actually, but it's called Filled Up, Poured Out by Mark O. Wilson. Uh, and the best place to look for that might be at the Wesleyan Publishing House, but it's probably on Amazon. But those are three books that have really shaped sort of my framework for Sabbath. Awesome. You and I are both um, pretty big fans of Craig Rochelle, too, and his his leadership podcast um, mm-hmm. It's very it's not targeted toward necessarily like Christians and ministers. It's targeted toward people who work. Um, and his, his podcast, he, he talks a lot about, you know, time away and, and prioritizing and things like that. And he doesn't necessarily, at least in the ones I've listened to, he doesn't explicitly talk about Sabbath rest, but the principles are there. Yep. And it's really good stuff too. So yep. that's a great Christian leadership podcast, I think. Yep what it's yep. called they're like 20 minutes 30 minutes long um, yeah listen to them listen to them on your drive to work uh it's you know it's good stuff for sure well um matt do you have any last words don't no, this was fun um was. i i don't want to like promise uh we might change the topics but I, I kind of wanted to preview our next episode, if that's all right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't want to lock us into place in case we have a, a heart change, but our October podcast, we're not going to do this every month, but um, we have a theme, you know, Labor Day. We're going to talk about working Sabbath. And October, we're talking about the supernatural. So we're going to talk about some of the passages in the Bible that talk about demons and spirits and ghosts and and how we as christians view and interact with the supernatural and how like i have a healthy view of those uh kinds of entities in the world which we as christians we believe are real so i'm excited to talk about that that will be good well thank you for joining uh theologizing life with anthony and we're going to do that every time. Matt. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to. Thank you for joining Theologizing Life with Anthony and Matt Tracy. Yeah. Oh, okay. You can do that. Then. Cool. We'll, we'll have to work. We'll have to coordinate so we, you know, are more in time. Oh, yeah. We'll work on it. Hey, uh, like, subscribe, share. Uh, any little thing you do can help expand our listener base. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time.